Hey yo, what is up everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Uh, today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the actively dying shock patient, uh, the undifferentiated shock patient, and what my approach uh, is to try to resuscitate these people as best as we possibly can. Uh, this may be uh, a little bit of a longer episode. I may even have to break this into two parts, so we'll just kind of see how it goes here. All right, so you walk into the room and you see that this patient in front of you is actively dying, um, actively uh, uh, in a profound shock, a profound undifferentiated shock. And so uh, let's talk about the priorities that you should immediately have when you walk into the room. And really, when, you, uh, when you're talking about priorities and shock, you're understanding truly what shock is, is oftentimes going to be beneficial. And really what shock is, is it is a supply problem, right? So the body has some amount of demand that it's looking for in this moment, and your body is unable to supply that, be it an oxygenation problem or a bleeding problem or a pipe or pump problem, uh, some sort of uh, contractility issue due to electrolytes or acidosis or toxidromes. There's many, many, many reasons why patients can go into shock. But if you kind of think of it like, okay, it's a supply problem. So where is my supply chain being interrupted? Uh, it can be a lot easier to uh, figure out how to really optimize these patients and their resuscitation. So there are a list of four priorities when you're looking to uh, uh, save somebody who's actively shocked. And we're going to talk about those now. So priority number one, when you walk into any patient's room that looks like they are shocky, is, is there oxygen saturation greater than 90%. If they are in the 60s, 70s, 80s, then that is not conducive with long-term life, and we are going to need to immediately do something to adjust those oxygen saturations, and we'll come back to that in just a few minutes here. All right, moving on to priority number two. So priority number two, after you have already looked at the saturations, is that we're going to look at the heart rate and blood pressure, just as the actual number that they are. We know that a patient who is shocked is going to have a relatively low blood pressure. They're going to have a relatively high heart rate. But priority number two is specifically looking at the heart rate and blood pressure in terms of are those two numbers the thing that is actually actively killing them. So if we look at this shocked patient and and they're a 75-year-old male who has a rapid AFib with a heart rate of 240, that is the thing that is actively killing him, and we don't need to be placing this person on a bunch of pressers and stuff like that, right? We're just going to fix the heart rate. So priority number two, look at that heart rate and look at the blood pressure. Is their heart rate between 40 and 150, and is their MAP above 65? And if you say no to either one of those questions, then priority number two is to immediately solve those uh, uh, with any means that you... Uh, that you need to. Um, and we'll get more into that here in just a few minutes. So really, those first two priorities that assessing and fixing their oxygen saturation and assessing and fixing their heart rate and blood pressure immediately in the first 30 seconds of meeting this patient, that is the bridge that's going to allow you to then move on to priorities three and priority four and then on down the list in order to save this patient. But if you don't immediately help their SATs and then their heart rate and blood pressure, then this patient's going to die before you can do anything for them. So um, those first two is kind of the part 
part one, uh, the first five minutes with the patient. And then as soon as we get this patient optimized, uh, which we'll venture into talking about some uh, some pressors and things like that, and we're going to do some case studies at the end of this talk as well. Um, but as soon as you uh, get through priorities number one and two, moving on to priority number three, we're going to be looking at the hemoglobin and specifically just does the patient need blood rather than just regular old fluids. And then priority number four is going to be to assess the stroke volume. And really what you can say with priorities three and priority four is, does this patient have a fluid problem? Do they have a pipe problem or do they have some sort of pump problem, right? So has this patient got just like a bunch of fluid deficits or do they have a bunch of sympathetic tone that is increasing their afterload and making it to where their heart can't beat against it? Um, or do they have a bunch of venodilation for some reason? Do they have some sort of obstructive shock that is preventing their, uh, uh, their pipes from properly filling? Um, there are uh, uh, there's so many different causes for you to have these types of shock, but really that's the big thing that we want to look for is priority number three, we're going to be looking at hemoglobin. Priority number four, we're going to be looking at is this like a pipe problem, fluid problem, or pump problem. And one thing that I would like to give a little mention to is that if we've got this patient optimized with their oxygen saturation, we've got their heart rate at a normal range, we're addressing their blood pressure with some sort of issue, it's a patient that's not bleeding, so we're giving them fluids instead of blood, and we're starting to look at that, um, that priority number four, which is really looking to determine if it's like a pipe problem or a pump problem, um, and we're really not sure what we, uh, you know, where we are in this patient, we're maybe thinking that they're like a septic patient or something, we can give this person all the pressors in the world. However, if we do have a severe acidosis, like a pH lower than 7.15 or so, it reduces the calcium flow in and out of the cell first, but it also reduces the heart's ability to use calcium. And so oftentimes we're going to see these contractility problems with these severe sepsis patients simply because of their profound acidosis. So, um, so you can almost say priority 4.1 uh, would be to make sure that they don't have such a profound acidosis that we need to uh, we need to empirically treat that pH with some sort of bicarb infusion. All right, so pretty easy um, when you're when you're just talking about the steps itself. We're going to get more into the the meat and potatoes here of it in just a second. But um, when you're looking at a review of shock, I mean, really, shock is pretty easy. It's just a problem with the supply. So is that supply um, a heart rate problem or a blood pressure problem or an oxygen saturation problem? Those are your priorities number one and two. We're going to fix those supply problems immediately, and then we're going to move on to priorities three and four, which is look at that hemoglobin, look at that. Uh, uh, look at that stroke volume. So we're essentially seeing if it's a pump problem or a pipe problem. Uh, and then priority 4.1 or 4.2, we're going to be looking at uh, looking at that acidosis. And if you really take shock system or systematically like that and address all of those priorities, then your patients are going to be very easily resuscitated. All right, so before we get into our case studies, though, talking about fixing vital signs, um, <clears throat> I had, uh, I've mentioned, like, is this a fluid or a pump or a pipe problem uh, several times now? And so really, let's look at those issues. And we're going to talk first about fluids, right? So anybody who is shocked, we're generally going to be giving them fluid. Um, but that's why step three, or the priority number three, is so important looking at their hemoglobin, because we cannot make 
miss the bleeding patient. And this does not necessarily have to be your traumatic hypovolemic patient. This can be your GI bleed patient. Uh, 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 this can be your, your severely anemic patient. So uh, if the patient needs blood, uh, then we need to make sure that the fluid that we are resuscitating them with is blood and not just normal saline or, uh, or LR. Number two, is it a pump problem or a pipe problem? Um, really looking at the patient's history in order to determine whether it is a distributive type issue or whether it is a cardiogenic type type issue. Um, that's where you're going to find those answers is just by looking at uh, looking at the patient history. And I think that everybody listening to this podcast right now probably uh, can name off all the signs and symptoms of all the various types of shock. So the more important thing to talk about is which presser would be appropriate for you or which vasoactive medication would be appropriate for you depending on the kind of shock. And so really the thing that you have to think about is most pressors act on most receptors. Uh, uh, the difference is, is that different pressors will act more on one receptor than they will on necessarily like another receptor. Uh, for example, um, epinephrine is a nonspecific beta-1, beta-2, and alpha agonist. However, we know that it interacts with those alpha receptors way more than it does with the beta-2 receptors, beta-2 meaning a vasodilation and bronchodilation. Um, and we know that because when we give somebody epinephrine, their blood pressure goes up, right? So the vasoconstricting properties of the alpha receptor is greatly outweighing the vasodilating effects of the beta-2 stimulation when you give somebody epi. So while most most pressors act on most receptors. Really understanding which pressors act more on which receptors is really the important thing. So just a quick review of these receptors. So we've got our alpha receptors, specifically our alpha-1, which is going to be vasoconstriction. We've got our beta-1, which is going to be our like increased inotropy, increased chronotropy. So you're going to get better squeeze. You're going to have faster squeeze on the heart. Beta-2 is our vaso and bronchodilation. Uh, and then you've got your, your dopaminergic, uh, uh, your D1 receptors, which you're not going to be playing with very often uh, or really hardly ever. Uh, and then you've got your uh, your V1, your, your vasopressin uh, 1 receptors. Um, and those are going to cause direct vasoconstriction, and they're also going to lead to increased fluid retention by the kidneys. All right, so if you do have somebody who has a purely a pipe problem, so they have this vasodilation for some reason, then the first thing that we need to give them is something that's going to squeeze those pipes closed. So we're going to give the vasoconstrictor. So we want to give a presser that has mostly alpha innervation. Uh, uh, and then if we, for some reason, are not able to fix that problem with our alpha drugs, then we're going to start thinking about our vasopressin drugs, right? Because that is also a direct vasoconstrictor. If you've got a pump problem, then the first thing we need to do is give some beta-1, so that way we get a better squeeze, we get better constriction, um, uh, 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 or excuse me, better contraction of that heart. Uh, we get uh, maybe a little increased heart rate. Um, and then as far as the presser goes that we're going to give them, we just need to make sure that if they are hypotensive, that we are giving something that has more alpha than it does beta 2, because most 
medications that are going to help increase your heart rate, increase contractility, are also going to promote vasodilation. So we have to make sure that if we are giving a medication like dibutamine, that we are also supplementing it with some sort of high alpha medication. So that way, we're not going to perpetuate their hypotension. So there's many names of the game. Um, uh, Levofed is probably the most popular uh, presser in the United States. Uh, it's very commonly used for sepsis. Typically, we're going to start the patient anywhere from about 5 to 10 micrograms per minute. Granted, these are just like very wide dose ranges. Please make sure that if you are giving these medications, you're following your own local guidelines. Uh, but when you look at Levofed, it has a ton of alpha. It does have a little bit of beta-1, so you're going to see a little increase increase in their heart rate. And then it also has a tiny bit of beta 2, but just a tiny bit of beta 2. And so all of that alpha innervation is going to uh, really be the most prominent thing with Levofed. So we're going to mostly see an increase in blood pressure. You typically will see their heart rate tick up a little bit. Then you've got phenylephrine. Phenylephrine is about like 40 to 60 mics a minute or so, and it's just pure vasoconstriction. It is only uh, an alpha medication. You're not going to see any increase in the heart rate. Um, uh, uh, you're, you're only going to see vasoconstriction. Then you've got epi and epi infusion, typically anywhere from like 1 to 10 mics a minute. Uh, epi is just the all-around medication, right? I mean, everybody knows what epi does what it, uh, and what it's used for. Um, has a ton of alpha-1, has a ton of beta-1, so we're going to see big vasoconstriction. We're going to see increases in the heart rate, increases in contractility, and then it also has a moderate amount of beta-2, uh, meaning that vasodilation and bronchodilation, which is why typically when you give an epi push, you are are not going to see this huge, impressive, crazy increase in their in their blood pressure, but you will see their heart rate tick up a little bit. You'll see their cardiac output uh, tick up, um, and that's because it actually has a pretty moderate amount of beta two stimulation as well, and that is uh, that's counteracting against that alpha innervation. Then we've got dopamine. Dopamine just kind of does everything. It's like got a little alpha, a little beta 1, a little beta 2, and then it's got its D1. Um, uh, dopamine, everybody's familiar with it. Uh, uh, it's still in the American Heart Association guidelines for severe hypotension following, uh, you know, following a cardiac arrest. Um, and that's just because it kind of touches all the receptors pretty evenly. And so you're going to... Um, uh, you're going to be able to kind of take care of the patient from multiple angles if you work in a system that doesn't have availability of like all these different pressors, right? Uh, and then you've got dibutamine. Dibutamine is uh, a little alpha. Mostly it has beta 1 and beta 2 stimulation, which is why you're going to see a big increase in their heart rate uh, or a moderate increase in their heart rate. You're going to see um, a uh, um, uh, a decrease in their blood pressure oftentimes because the beta 2 greatly outweighs the alpha stimulation of dibutamine. And so we do give dibutamine, uh, or excuse me, we give patients in cardiogenic shock dibutamine to increase their cardiac output, but oftentimes they'll need to be supplemented with some sort of alpha stimulant like uh, levofed or epi or phenylephrine, something that will increase their, uh, their blood pressure uh, uh, to counteract the vasodilatory effects of dibutamine.
And then the last thing, the second line uh, presser for a pipe problem is going to be vasopressin. So if you've got levofed or you've got epi um, infusing for somebody who's really hypotensive and you just are jacking up those rates and you for some reason just cannot uh, uh, cannot get their blood pressure to, uh, uh, to a, a livable range, can't get that map above 65, we'll go ahead and hang some vasopressin at like 0.04 units per minute uh, in order to... Uh, um, uh, attack that blood pressure problem from a different angle. So I know that that was a bunch of information talking about those pressors, but I think that it's important to just kind of go over uh, uh, go over the different types of pressors that we have uh, and talk about the different angles that we can approach our patients with. But really, if you're wanting to kind of keep it real simple. Uh, if you've got somebody who inherently has, or just it's not inherently, if somebody just has a blood pressure problem uh, uh, due to a pipe issue, then typically levofed is going to be your first line. If you're increasing a levofed drip above you know 20 mics a minute, um, then you have fully saturated those alpha receptors. And it doesn't matter if you increase the levofed to 30 or 40 or 50 mics a minute, you're not going to be further increasing the saturation of those alpha receptors. So you're not going to be able to get any more squeeze from, from uh, innervating those alphas. So you're going to need to attack that blood pressure from a different angle. And I think that a lot of providers would be like, oh, well, let's go ahead and hang an epidrip. But an epidrip just does the same thing, right? I mean, sure, you're going to have a more profound increase in the heart rate when you do an epidrip, but you can't give more alpha stimulation from epi uh, if you're already, you're already fully saturated in those alpha receptors from levofed. So you've got to attack it from a different angle. And that other angle is going to be vasopressin because it's hitting those V1 receptors and you're going to have direct vasoconstriction from the V1. Plus you're having that increased fluid retention in the kidneys once you start to release a bunch of aldosterone and stuff like that. So, um, uh, And then if you've got your cardiogenic shock patient, then we're going to be hanging dibutamine oftentimes in uh, conjunction with with some sort of alpha like uh, like epi or levofed. All right, cool. So um, I am pleasantly surprised that I was able to get through uh, get through that stuff in about 15-ish minutes or so. And so we should have time for our cases. So case number one, and granted, um, there's a lot of information in this case, but it's definitely a um, it's a good one. I'll try to repeat the vital signs as much as I can to, uh, to make it to where anybody who's listening to this while driving doesn't have to try to feel like they have to write them down or anything. All right, so you are called to do a transfer for a 48-year-old male patient. He was located in the ICU. He presented to the ED five days ago with fever and increased work of breathing. He was admitted to the hospital with diagnosis of pneumonia and was given some IV antibiotics. He had increasing need for O2 until he was finally intubated two nights ago and was sent to the ICU. Um, when you walk into the room to facilitate this transfer, uh, you find the patient, um, uh, or you get report that he had failed to wean from the ventilator this afternoon. And you look over and see he has ventilator settings as follows. And uh, if you guys are not ventilator experts, no big deal. But for those of you that do know vent settings, then that is awesome. So this guy is also six foot one. He has an ideal body weight um, of about uh, 75 kilos. Uh, so uh, current vent settings, he's on a uh, on an SIMV volume. He has a set tidal volume of 550 milliliters. He has a respiratory rate of 16. He has an FiO2 currently at 30%, and he has a PEEP of 5. He has a pressure support also set to uh, 10. However, he is not taking any spontaneous breaths.
Uh, he has current vital signs as follows. He has a GCS of three. He is pale, cool, and diaphoretic. He has a blood pressure of 57 over 34. He has a heart rate of 144. Uh, his lungs are bilateral ronchi. He has an end CO2 of 27 and an oxygen saturation of 91. We also have a lab sheet printout um, as well. I'll try to try, or I'll try to just focus on any um, pertinent labs here. So we have a lactate of nine. Uh, that's bad juju. Uh, we have a pH of seven point three. We have a CO two of uh, of twenty nine. We have a, a PO two of sixty seven, and then it looks like we also have a K of six. We currently have normal saline running at fifty mLs per hour currently is receiving a propofol drip at 80 mics per kilo per minute. So obviously this is a super sick patient. He's hypotensive, he's tachycardic, he's pale, cool, diaphoretic, his labs look like suckiness. So this is an actively dying patient, right? So what do you do first? And we're gonna look at our four priorities here. So priority number one, does this patient have an oxygen saturation problem? And we looked at the, uh, the SATs were 91%. So no, he does not have a saturation problem in this moment. Priority number two, does he inherently have a heart rate or blood pressure problem. His heart rate's 144, which is super fast, but it's not killing him fast, right? So we're not super worried about the heart rate in and of this moment, probably just a compensatory mechanism to try to keep him alive. His blood pressure is 5.7 over 3.4, meaning he's got a map somewhere in the low 40s. Um, and so is this a blood pressure problem? Uh, yes, it totally is, right? So this person has a huge blood pressure problem. So we've identified our first problem and we're going to need to fix it. Uh, and how are we going to fix this patient's blood pressure problem? Well, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to actually reduce his sedation by probably 50%. Uh, anytime you have somebody on a sedation package that's going to lead them to become hypotensive like propofol, if you walk into the room and they're profoundly hypotensive, we should go ahead and just immediately reduce that uh, reduce that sedation a little bit so that way, um, uh, that way it's not continuously working against us. The second thing that I'm going to do in order to fix that blood pressure is in order to bridge that person uh, uh, to life uh, or keep them alive while I'm getting all of the rest of these drips ready, I'm going to immediately give them a push dose presser, uh, something that is um, uh, very increasingly common nowadays. I know that ground ambulances in my region are actually phasing out dopamine and they're only going to be, or they're, excuse me, they're only giving push dose epi for patients with profound hypotension. Um, Third thing I'm going to do is increase the fluids, and then the fourth thing I'm going to do is start a presser. So which presser should I be starting? And I think that from the report that uh, I gave when I was first reading this uh, case study, uh, we can all agree this patient is probably in septic shock. And so the presser that I'm going to be starting is going to be levofed, and I'm going to start that levofed at about 10 mics per minute. If I have to increase the levofed greater than 20 mics a minute, um, just like I had just talked about, those alpha receptors are already totally saturated. So now we're going to be starting a vasopressin drip at like 0.04 units per minute. Um, and keep in mind, like I said, please make sure that you are referencing your own guidelines when you're talking uh, about dosages for these medications. Um, these are just uh, very generic numbers um, uh, that may not reflect your own internal guidelines. So don't, uh, don't take everything that I say as gospel here. 
after vasopressin, if they're still not controlled, if their blood pressure still sucks, we need to start thinking about other pressors or ask yourself like, hey, is this purely a pipe problem? And if not, then um, then we need to attack it from a, from a different angle, like an electrolyte issue or whatnot. All right, so we cut those uh, the sedation in half. We added some fluids into this patient. We gave him a push dose presser, which gave me enough time to draw up my vial of levofed, put it in a 250 bag and get it all programmed into the pump. And now it is flowing on the pump at 10 mics a minute. Uh, and now that I've uh, semi-resuscitated this patient, now I'm going to continue on with my treatment priorities um, to priority number three and priority number four. So number three would be look at the hemoglobin. Does this patient have a hemoglobin problem? And I would say probably not, right? This is a septic patient. We probably don't need to be giving uh, be giving blood, but we definitely do need to be giving them some fluids. And so uh, uh, I'm going to be giving him a bolus of normal saline. And then number four is to look and see if it's a pipe problem or is it uh, is there some modicum of a pump problem. So I'm going to be looking at that stroke volume on that patient. Um, uh, on, on this septic patient, he has a pH of 7.3, so I'm not worried about like a severe acidosis. Um, I'm really just thinking that this is a pure um, distributive issue, so I'm going to need to make sure and confirm their source of infection. Uh, we already know that this was a confirmed pneumonia case. Uh, we, uh, we still see that he's got bilateral ronchi when we listen to his lung sounds. So really knowing what type of shock it is or identifying what type of shock it is which is the, the absolute last priority, uh, or the final priority, I should say, not your last priority, but your final priority, identifying the type of shock. Um, I'm going to go with sepsis for this patient. And so we know that we're giving uh, pressors. We know we're giving fluids. We know we're managing them appropriately on the ventilator right now. So now we just need to make sure that we're also getting, um, you know, getting some antibiotics on board if they do still, or if they have a source of, of their shock, like it's a, a female who has a, uh, you know, like a tampon that's been in her vaginal vault for seven days, uh, we need to make sure that we're removing that source of infection. All right, so we've done all these things. This patient uh, was reevaluated, has a RAS of negative two, so that means that he's pretty easily arousable. He's a blood pressure of 88 over 57, so we've got a MAP greater than 65, that's good. We have a heart rate at 128. Um, respiratory rate is now 22, so he is breathing over the top of the ventilator, and oxygen saturation is 89%. So, um, uh, so really just kind of making this patient more comfortable. The things we're gonna do next, we're gonna start to look again at that sedation. We reduce it by 50% in order to actively resuscitate them. But now we need to like start thinking about adding it back or adding it back in a different way. And now we're going to start to also make some adjustments to the ventilator in order to uh, optimize their oxygen saturation, which has dropped to 89% during the course of our care here. So um, I'm not going to super get into sedation packages right now, but we'll just say we initiated them on like a ketamine and fentanyl drip. Um, uh, the patient uh, uh, became much more sleepy tired after he was initiated on that ketamine drip and, and uh, as, with that fentanyl drip in conjunction with it. And then we made some adjustments to the ventilator, increased that PEEP up to 8, increased the FiO2 up to 50%, and his oxygen saturation returned to 94%. Disposition for this patient is that he survived his sepsis and was discharged home. 
All right, one more case, and uh, this will probably bring us to the very end here. We have a 74-year-old male. He arrives at the emergency department with shortness of breath. Upon arrival, his uh, wife relayed that he uh, has a history of heart issues and high blood pressure. He was complaining of feeling ill a few days ago and has had increasing shortness of breath over the last two days. Um, you actually walk into this patient's room and find him to be profoundly short of breath. He has audible rails from the doorway. He's pale and ashen. He's not making eye contact with providers um, as you enter the room. So what do we do first for this patient, right? This patient just got to the emergency department, hasn't had anything done on them yet. Hopefully you're formulating a plan in your mind already about what you're going to do for this patient. But I think the obvious things are we're going to get some bottle signs. We're going to start a couple IVs on him. We're going to check a sugar real quick. If he's obtunded and pale, cool diaphoretic, right? Checking a sugar is a very low hanging fruit. And then based off of his history, we're obviously immediately going to be doing a 12 lead EKG. Uh, so we get some vitals. He is uh, pale, cool, dry. He's got a GCS of 13, so he's just a little confused. He has a blood pressure of 67 over 34, um, which is like no bueno. He has a heart rate of 84. That's pretty telling when somebody's hypotensive and normocardic. That is uh, pretty telling. Um, uh, he has a respiratory rate of 28 with uh, with audible rails. You don't even need to listen to his lung sounds. He feel, he sounds full from the doorway. Uh, and he has oxygen saturation at 84%. Uh, blood sugar comes back at 154. And then you guys do a 12 lead and he looks like he's uh, just got a big left bundle branch block. He's got left axis deviation, um, no scarbosa criteria, MED or anything like that. So it doesn't look like he has any active MI, obviously a sick looking heart having that big left bundle branch block, uh, but it sounds like he has history of the same. All right, so uh, we got some uh, some baseline information from him. Now, what are we going to do in order to save this patient? And so we're going to look at priorities one and two. We're going to look at his SATs, and then we're going to look at his heart rate and blood pressure. Oxygen saturation was 84%. So yes, this patient uh, has a uh, an oxygen problem that is killing him. And then priority number two, we're going to look at that heart rate and blood pressure. He has a heart rate of 84, which is totally fine. And then he has a blood pressure of 67 over 34, so that is not fine and we need to do something about that. All right. Um, <clears throat> so the first things first, the oxygen saturation, we're going to go ahead and start him on at least a high flow cannula, if not an odd rebreather. If not, we're going to go ahead and escalate up to BiPAP on this patient, keeping in mind that uh, we we may need to be judicious with our, our EPAP settings um, uh, in order to make sure that we're not reducing his cardiac output uh, any more than we already are. As far as his heart rate and blood pressure, the immediate thing that we're going to do is uh, get him started on an alpha agonist uh, so that way we can um, uh, we can augment that blood pressure and once we get him started on that like a little levo drip or, or an epi drip even um, we're then going to move on and start to look at the hemoglobin does he have a hemoglobin problem and then does he have uh, you know what's his stroke volume does he have a pump problem or a pipe problem and I would say that if you were listening to this uh, then you can say that the kind of shock we're probably looking at is maybe cardiogenic shock I would definitely want to look at his labs to make sure that we didn't have some sort of hidden like GI bleed that was making this 
this patient altered and pale and diaphoretic and hypotensive, some real slow GI bleed that um, that he maybe wasn't compensating for, or if he does take a lot of cardiac medications, maybe his heart rate can't compensate for it. And so you, um, I'm not going to jump on the cardiogenic shock bandwagon just yet, um, but with the rails and sounding like he was feeling like a little ill and weird a few days ago, and he's progressively gotten worse and worse, the story is really good for the dude had like an MI a couple days ago, and now he is in a cardiogenic shock. So the first thing, remember, we're going to do that respiratory support. If he continues to go downhill and downhill and downhill, then we're going to continue to escalate from a cannula to a non-rebreather to BiPAP, and then eventually to intubation if we need to. The second is that we're starting those pressors immediately. We're starting an alpha agonist immediately, so we're doing that levofed at 5 to 10 mics a minute or so. And then the third thing is, is we're evaluating that, uh, that hemoglobin, that fluid status requirement. Um, uh, all of his labs, uh, as far as his uh, his CBC came back pretty unremarkable. His hemoglobin was normal. Um, he <laughs> did have a little, um, uh, excuse me, he had like a, a lower sodium. He had a lower BUN. Uh, he had a lower hematocrit. So it looks like he actually has a little too much fluids on board. Um, and so I'm really not going to be giving him any fluids whatsoever. And then the fourth priority, is it a pump problem or a pipe problem? I think we can all agree that at this point, we probably found that it is a pipe or excuse me, a pump problem. This is a cardiogenic issue. And, uh, 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 so after the MAP went above 60 with levofed, uh, we'll go ahead and initiate some dibutamine on this patient at like 10 mics per kilo per minute or something around those lines uh, in order to uh, get a better squeeze coming out of this heart. Uh, so some disposition stuff with this patient. Um, levofed was started. It ended up being titrated up several times. Oxygen saturation. Uh, uh, did increase with to a normal-ish level. The patient was actually placed on BiPAP at 12 over 10, um, so pretty high um, EPAP setting actually. Uh, dibutamine was initiated at 10, um, and then eventually the patient began to fatigue uh, and was eventually intubated actually. Uh, disposition, he did have initial improvement, but after two weeks in the ICU, he eventually expired. Um, so unfortunately, we can't save everybody, but, uh, but we can definitely uh, treat them all uh, to the best of our ability. Cardiogenic shock has an 80% mortality. So unless you can find some reversible cause like a toxidrome or an MI or something like that, then oftentimes these patients are not uh, not experiencing a survivable injury. But um, well, I hope that uh, you guys enjoyed this episode. It definitely is a long episode, uh, but it's something that um, but it's something that hopefully will make sense to a few of you and maybe uh, maybe help you in your practice from here on out, being able to uh, being able to, to uh, uh, delve your way through a shock patient in a more systematic way, take some of that cognitive load off of you. Uh, so if you guys um, have any uh, questions or comments or want to reach out about any type of further episode, don't forget to reach out to me at kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys in a few weeks.